0: Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12. We've been working our way through Samuel. What I anticipate is that we'll continue through the end of the Samuel Saul section and uh, take a break when we arrive at the the David portion of Samuel and we'll turn to something else and Lord willing we'll come back to Samuel. But uh, here we are in chapter 12. In our passage this morning, Samuel gathers the people of God to tell them the way forward now that they've rejected their God as king over them. They asked for a human king like all the other nations around them. You may remember as we've been reading the story, they uh, put their hopes not in God, but in a human governor. And so what would be the way forward as the people of God after that? And as we read these words, is the point for us to say, well, how foolish and idiotic are those people? Or is it rather uh, to have our own hearts exposed, uh, to recognize our own desires for false gods and ask ourselves, how exactly do, you, do I act this way? It may be worse. So let me invite you to consider these things. From 1 Samuel chapter 12, we'll read the whole of this chapter. You can find it on page 233. Give your attention then to the authoritative word of God. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? whom have I oppressed or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it testify against me and I will restore it to you they said you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand and he said to them the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand and they said he is witness and samuel said to the people the lord is witness who appointed moses and aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of egypt now therefore stand still that i may plead with you before the lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the lord that he performed For you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord. And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera commander of the army of Hazor and into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the king of Moab and they fought against them and they cried out to the Lord and said we have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. but now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you and the Lord sent Jerubal and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you lived in safety and when you saw that Nahash the king of the Ammonites came against you you said to me no but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king and now behold the king whom you have chosen for whom you have asked behold The Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord. Then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord and he, that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord, your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away. Both you and your pain. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word. By it, you speak to us. And so we ask that by it, you would give a life to us, that you would restore our souls, that you would give joy to our hearts. Uh, that you would speak and give us ears to hear you and hearts to trust you, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a farewell from Samuel. Farewells are fascinating things. I watched uh, the farewell speech of General Douglas MacArthur on uh, YouTube. You can actually see it from 1951. uh, He had uh, been a five-star general. He'd been only one of five men ever to be named uh, to the rank of General of the Army, of the US Army. And uh, perhaps if you remember your history, you know that he was prominent in World War II. He he was the general who received the surrender of Japan, and he was the general who oversaw the, the political and social uh, and economic changes uh, to Japan from 1945 to 1951. And then he also served as the, the head of the United Nations Command in the Korean War until President Truman relieved him of duty in 1951. He fired him, brought him back. So MacArthur came home after 52 years of military service, and he came home as a hero. Uh, they had him address Congress in April of 1951. You can watch it, as I said. 30 million people watched him on TV in 1951. He spoke for 34 minutes. There were 30 interruptions for applause. And then he got to the end. And he said this. Speaking of those that he led, he said, Those gallant men will remain often in my thoughts and in my prayers always. And then speaking of himself, he alluded to the line in the ballad, about old soldiers never die, they just fade away and he talked about how he was fading away and then in a quiet voice he said goodbye. It's quite a performance, it had a profound effect on people, captivated the nation. Not unlike, I think Samuel's farewell here would have captivated the people. This is uh, uh, his his final handing over of the reins, so to speak. He wasn't a king, but he was the chief judge. He governed, he ruled, he uh, helped uh, protect, and and now they've got a king. He's handing that over to Saul. So verses one and two, Samuel said to all Israel, "Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me, and you." And I have made a king over you, and now behold, the king walks before you, and I'm old and gray. Uh, behold, my sons are with you. I've walked before you for my youth until this day. So There's a kind of retirement ceremony for him, too. I'm, I'm old. I'm gray. I guess my time is up here now. Uh, Saul's the man. And so uh, he passes on the reins. It's also a kind of covenant renewal ceremony, not just a retirement for Samuel from this aspect of his public life. But, but if you remember, at the end of chapter 11, the Lord had won a great victory for them against Nahash. And, and then the, Samuel called for a renewal of the covenant with God, a renewal of the kingship or the kingdom. And what did he do? He brought them to Gilgal and he assembled them there. And, and this actually, chapter 12, is, is what's going on at Gilgal as the covenant with God is renewed. Uh, and, And so what you have here in this chapter is kind of the substance of covenant renewal for a people who have strayed from the Lord. What does Samuel say to them and what does he say to us? Let me highlight three things from the passage. In verses 1 through 12, he says you need to own up to your idolatry. And then in verses 13 through 18, he says, fear the Lord. And then finally, in verses 19 to the end, go forward in his grace. Now, I want you to see these things from the passage. In verses 3 through 12, the first thing I want you to see is Samuel says, you need to own up to your hidden idolatry. What's going on here in these verses? So the, the opening words here, beginning of verse 3 and following, are um, feisty. Uh, they kind of have an edge. And there's a lot of courtroom language here. He uses languages like, like witness, uh, testify against. He's, he's talking about accusations of wrongdoing. And, and so basically what he does is, verses uh, 1 to 5, he, or 3 to 5, he steps forward and he says, I want you to put me on trial publicly. As I leave the ministry here of of being your judge, prosecute me if you will. And then, actually, in verse six, he turns and he says, "Now I'm going to prosecute you." Uh, Notice uh, what he invites here; as he puts himself on trial. Verse three: Here I am, testify against me before the Lord and His anointed, before the Lord and the King. Uh, Whose oxen have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Who have I defrauded? Who have I oppressed? From whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes? Testify against me and I will restore it. I don't want to leave this place with any unfinished business, any ill will. He knew that people tend to distrust authority. And he says as he's leaving his authoritative position, you can air my dirty laundry if You've got the dirt on me. Now's your opportunity. And verse 4, they say, You have not defrauded or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And so he said to them, The Lord is a witness between us. The Lord is a witness against you. Don't come back at me 20 years from now. Right? And, uh, and, and so then he turns it on them. And, and in some ways, I think, I mean Samuel knows what he's done he knows he'd be innocent of that kind of um, uh, sinful leadership he wasn't a sinless man you understand but he didn't do those things he knew there's a sense in which he was offering that that he might turn it back on them and so he does at verse 6 and following I'm going to accuse you he says to them And he brings out exhibit A. Exhibit A. Moses and the Exodus. Uh, Look at verse 8. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. Your forefathers were cruelly enslaved, he says, but they cried to the Lord, and the Lord delivered them. Yet, verse 9, here's his indictment of the people. But they forgot the Lord their God. So what happened? End of verse 9. The Lord sold them into the hand of Sisera, and into the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. We forget the Lord, Samuel is saying. We turn away from the Lord, Samuel is saying. And the Lord does what? Well, what's the history? He gives us over to what we want until we learn what we want is bad for us you don't want the Lord you want to forget the Lord you want to go a different direction it's going to be painful I'll let you go that route until you call to me and I will rescue you when you do This is a way in which God disciplines his children. This is one way in which he still disciplines his children. Be careful what you want. And so they forget the Lord and they forsake the Lord, but he doesn't forget them or forsake them. He faithfully disciplines them and his ear is attentive to their cry for help and for mercy. So what happens? Exhibit B he brings out. The days of the judges. Verse 10 they cried out to the Lord and said, We've sinned because we've forsaken the Lord and we've served the Baals and the Ashtaroths. But now deliver us, they say, out of the hand of our enemies, that we may serve you, they say to the Lord. So again they cry out. Again he saves them. How does he save them? He sends them heroes, verse 11. The Lord sent you, Jerubbabel. Now that's Gideon. And if you just look at the Gideon story, it's clear he has this, these various names and he sent you Beedon the ESV has gone ahead and translated it Barak though the Hebrew says Beedon there's some confusion about who this guy is because he actually doesn't appear in the narrative stories but then of course the lists of judges aren't necessarily exhaustive but because Barak follows Gideon some think that this is actually just him I don't know then uh, the Lord sent you Jephthah and he sent Samuel so Samuel's talking he sent me and delivered you, again, out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. Samuel's point is in the immortal words of my friend Scott Davis, I know you are Jews, and you don't eat bacon, but the Lord has saved your bacon, time and again. He showed up for you, again and again. Now exhibit C, Nahash, verse 12. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you. Now, remember, he's the king from the last chapter who had, uh, who had oppressed Jabesh Gilead. He said, I'll make a treaty with you. But basically, the treaty amounted to this. You'll be my servants and slaves, and I'll cut out the right eye of every one of you. I'll make, I'll make you uh, disabled veterans, incapable of military service. I'll bring disgrace upon Israel. But then, you know, you can serve me. I'll let you live. So what did Israel do in the face of Nahash? End of verse 12. Samuel says, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king. You see what Samuel is doing? He's indicting them. He's prosecuting them. Unlike their forefathers who in their distresses under the heavy hand of false uh, of of of, uh, of the enemies of Israel, God rescued them and brought them out. And now, again, after all these stories, you didn't turn to the Lord to help you; you turned elsewhere. You demanded a human king so you could be like everybody else, and so you didn't want your faithful God. You, you wanted to turn to some kind of different technique to help yourself. And, and that is it's the kind of hidden idolatry that's going on in their hearts. That they, they didn't even see that this is what they were really doing. And Samuel calls them out on it. He presses it on them. And let's just pause there and reflect. We ourselves have our own Nahash moments in life. We face a new crisis. We encounter some new, incredibly difficult, maybe painful problem. Something we don't know what to do with. And sometimes what do we do? We we go to our box of workable solutions. We go to our toolkit for how do I help myself out of this predicament. We look out for ourselves without ever crying out to the Lord. Help me. Lord, rescue me. Lord, I need you. Come to my aid. There's a New Testament example of this in Mark chapter 6 with the disciples when Jesus has just in Mark chapter 6 fed the 5,000. You remember that with five loaves of bread and two small fish, he multiplied it all so that everybody could have lunch. And right after that story, uh, Jesus goes up on the mountain. The disciples go down to the sea and they get in a boat. And there's a massive windstorm that comes up and it's pushing them back and they're struggling and they're distressed. And Jesus comes down off the mountain and he walks on the sea. And he walks right by them and then he gets into the boat with them. Now, uh, this has a backstory. Who in the Bible does the Bible say treads upon the sea? God. God walks on the water. And so Jesus here. Uh, gets into their boat. So, what did the early believers get from that? They got that Jesus is on the mountain and Jesus is on the sea and Jesus is where his distressed people need him to be. He comes to the aid of his people. They are, at the end of that story, utterly astounded, astonished. I mean, I suppose as we would have been who walks on water. It says they were utterly astonished for they did not understand about the loaves. They didn't get the point of the feeding of the 5,000. If they had only thought it through and believed it, if Jesus can feed a multitude with five loaves and two fish, he's competent to handle a storm. He's competent. But... Like them, we get into our Nahash moments, situations, and we forget that Jesus can take care of us. That Jesus is interested in the well-being of his people. And so we run to other helpers. We look to other solutions. We lean on our own wisdom. And in so doing, maybe what we're saying in our heart is, Lord, I don't want you to be my king You aren't doing the job as it needs doing. And when we say that, we're saying, I need someone else. I need something else. I at least need to look after myself. And that is the idolatry of the human heart. We try to take care of ourselves when we should go to the Lord to take care of us. And we are as guilty as the Israelites of that. That's the first thing I want you to see. Now, the second is, notice what Samuel does here. He calls them, verses 13 to 18, to tremble before a jealous God. He says, the Lord gave you what you asked for. Here's the king. He sent the king over you. That was the Lord's chastisement to them. This isn't going to end up being a, a good king for them. But even then, of course, the Lord empowered the king he gave them. The Spirit of God rushed upon that king. If you remember the story from last week, the Spirit rushed upon him and so Saul rescued the people from the hand of Nahash. So even the king that the people wanted against their true king, the true king helped that king rescue the people. So God remains God. He still looks out for his people. And now he sets before them a choice. Verses 14 and 15. Here's the choice. Verse 14, If you will fear the Lord and serve him, And obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. Opposite choice, verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. This is, in Old Testament language, very basic covenant stuff. It's just the reassertion of covenant language for the people of God before God. Are you for me, Lord, or against me? And the Lord says, are you for me or against me? Are you one who wants me? Or do you not want me? Do you aspire to live under my rule? Or do you aspire to throw me off? And so the alternatives given to them are clear. Verse 14, live faithfully under the Lord's word. Or verse 15, suffer justly under the Lord's hand, as Ralph Davis puts it. And and to put an exclamation point on this choice before them, he gives them a supernatural sign. He gives them this sign about the wheat harvest and rain. And in one way, it's maybe Samuel saying to them, now look, I'm not a senile old man. And I'm not just making this stuff up because I'm crotchety and mad, right? Let me tell you what's going to happen. Today's the wheat harvest, verse 17. I'll call upon the Lord. He'll send thunder and rain. And you will know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So understand the sign. This is the weed harvest. This is May, June, in Palestine. It doesn't rain ordinarily from April to October. It doesn't rain at all. If you even look today, the weather folks say, how much rain will they get in Jerusalem? Nil. Nada. Zero. For the next few months. So it's the weed harvest. If you want to you want to harvest it when it's dry, he's going to send rain and destroy their wheat crop at the prayer of Samuel. And it will clearly be the Lord's doing. This would be like here in Arkansas if somebody a prophet came and said the Lord's so serious about you following him and not turning your back on him. He just wants to show you he's real. It's, we're going to have six inches of snow on July 4th. We would all say, no, we're not. And when it happened, we would have to reflect. Who's in charge of the universe? Who's the king I ought to obey? He doesn't want them uh, to have any shadow of doubt. And so, verse 18, Samuel called upon the Lord. The Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people did what? They greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And that fear was appropriate. It was the right way to respond to the Lord's destruction of their weed harvest. And more than that, it was the right way to respond to the Lord against whom they had rebelled, who was displeased with their rebellion. Why is God doing it that way? I think because married love is jealous love. A lover is rightly jealous for the love of their beloved. A wife rightly desires that her husband's eyes and affections be for her and not for the girl next door and not for the airbrushed porn star. Likewise, a husband who loves his wife rightly is jealous for his wife's respect and attention. The Lord in the scripture is the husband of his people. And he is rightly angry when his bride doesn't trust him, but goes looking for another lover. I am your husband, the Lord says to his people. Show me respect. Show me loyalty. Show me love. I have loved you. Look at the great things I've done for you. And so he wants them to tremble before this jealous God, Samuel does. and Now, We might be tempted to say, well, that that sounds pretty Old Testament to me. But, you know, it's not really this way in the New Testament. Except that Luke chapter 12, Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed the body. Has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, Jesus says. Fear him. We should have a a proper awe, a proper trembling to scorn God. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer at great length talks about all the wonderful blessings we have in Jesus. And he says in 12, you have come uh, not, not to Mount Sinai with its fire and earthquake and loud commands. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God and the angels and uh, festal array. It's a party. It's celebration. You're, you're righteous in Jesus. you have forgiveness. You're welcome. It's wonderful. And how does he conclude that? To those who are so privileged, he says, therefore... Let us worship God with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Is there that sense of awe? And then, therefore, that sense, I, I don't want to displease him. So that's the second thing he tells us. He says, consider your hidden idolatry, tremble before a jealous God. But thirdly, 19 to 25, Walk forward in his faithful grace. Don't miss the kindness and severity of the Lord in Paul's terms from Romans. Or in John Newton's language, it's grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieve. Um, notice notice what happens here they own up to their idolatry verse 19 they say pray for your service to the lord your god that we may not die for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for a king they get it now and they own it we have done wrong now what do you say to a people who've committed a major screw-up who have rejected the kingship of lord who now live in fear for their lives what do you tell them verse 20 and 21 samuel says this do not be afraid you have done all this evil yet do not turn aside from following the lord but serve the lord with all your heart and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver for they are empty look you've done all the evil but don't be afraid and don't turn away there's no place else for you to go Everything else is empty. Don't chase those empty things. They can't benefit you. They can't rescue you. But the Lord can benefit you, and the Lord can rescue you. And he gives them these three affirmations of that. He speaks of God, verse 22. He speaks of his own ministry, verse 23. And he speaks of them, verse 24 and following. He speaks of God. He says God's purposes are sure. Verse 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people. For his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. You see what he's doing? He's pointing them to God's faithfulness. Don't be afraid, don't turn aside. God's name is on the line with you. He's acting because he is determined to have a people for himself and he will not let his people go. You don't deserve his faithfulness. Samuel says to them, but God is faithful in spite of your unfaithfulness. And then he turns and he says, secondly, and my ministry is continuing. This is his second uh, affirmation to them. They had pleaded, verse 19, pray for us. We've messed up big time. How does he respond? Verse 23, moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord By ceasing to pray for you and I will instruct you in the good and the right way so Samuel says look don't think I'm going to leave you the Lord didn't leave you how 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 would I dare to leave you I'll continue my priestly ministry of prayer I'll continue my prophetic ministry of teaching preaching I'll intercede for you and I'll instruct you I'm just not going to be your king I'm not going to be your judge He doesn't say, you can all go to pot for all I care. I'm out. How like then our greater Samuel, Jesus, who always lives to intercede for us. We have one greater than Samuel. He knows all our junk. And he doesn't turn his face away. And then he says to them, now your path is clear. Verse 24, only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things He has done for you. He's repeating verses 20 and 21. And it all rests on this in verse 22. It rests on this, for the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. He will never forsake His people. So go forward in his faithful grace that's where it rests Uh, william still ralph davis tells the story of william still if you know that name he's got a a wonderful little pastoral book on um, letters from a pastor he was a a pastor in the church of scotland he was a bachelor his whole life in the first part of his ministry uh, his aunt bella came to live with him while he was carrying on his ministry she kept house and cooked and gave him company and during that time the early period of his ministry he was preaching and he looking back on that said it's as if everything came around to the doctrine of judgment and hell it seemed like the holy spirit was pressing this upon me to put this in front of the people it was beginning to wear on the people some were beginning to say this is the church of scotland not the salvation army that sort of thing and uh, and so he was saying look it it was kind of getting real heavy on people Uh, It was like he was dragging their noses across concrete or something. And they just couldn't take it much anymore. And during that time, he says, uh, my aunt and I were having lunch together in Lord's Day. And over lunch, she said to me, you know, I'm sitting there with them in the pew and taking it all. I feel for them. Oh, Willie, she says, is there no love in the gospel? And he said, that shook me. But I had to say, I I can do nothing but what the Lord has laid on my heart. Well, his aunt said, if it goes on, there will soon be no one there but you and me. And Willie said to her, And will you desert me then? And his aunt said with conviction, I committed myself to you in the Lord's work here, and I will never forsake you. There's a sense in which Ralph Davis goes on to make this point, I think brilliantly. You could take those words of Willie Still's aunt. And put them in the Lord's mouth. It's as if He's saying, "I've committed myself to you, you as my people, and I will never forsake you." So what do you do? You go on. You don't go back. You don't have to go back and wallow in the guilt of some terrible sin that you've committed. These people threw off God as their king. They installed and crowned Saul as their king. He doesn't say, you need to strip the crown off Saul's head and go make it right. Clean up your own mess. Actually, no. There are big mistakes we make. Conscious rebellions, perhaps. They may cast a shadow over our whole whole life. They They may cause us great consternation. There may be consequences associated with the big hairy sins we've committed in the past. The one thing we can't do is clean up our own mess. We can't make atonement for our own sin. Jesus makes atonement for our sin. You don't have to go back. Go forward with the Jesus who atones for you. You can go on because the true king has come. Jesus has come. And he was cursed for you. For your covenant breaking. And he was faithful to God. For your covenant obligations. And he has made you a people for God. For God's own possession. He will never condemn you for your guilt. He will not turn his face away from you in shame. He holds on to you and never lets you go for his own name's sake. So walk forward with him, starting here, in faithful grace, with the God who exposes you, the God who frightens you, and the God who holds you fast. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you are slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And far as the east is from the west, so far you remove our transgressions from us. Thank you that you're a savior to your people. You are also a king to your people. Grant that we would live under your lordship, even as we enjoy your saving mercy. Help us. We're prone to wander and go astray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.